Part 11 of The Boy with the White Hair Written and performed by Nick Thurston It was at about this time that the first chinks began to appear in winter's armor. The winds, howling east over the spine of the mountains, began to blow less ferociously. The clouds, which for months now had rolled without cease down into the lowlands to disgorge entire landscapes of snow, began to grow thin. At night, Eglos could now see the stars. During the day, a luminous, pale gray ceiling, high above. Another change was taking place, too. It was far more subtle, and not so easily defined as the lengthening of the days or the reappearance of the moons. Nonetheless, it was impossible to ignore. Ever since the night she had helped him with his cough, Thula had begun to warm to Eglas. It began with humor. Eglas had a fondness for foolery of all sorts. Having grown up alongside the fun-loving friskies of the woodland realm, he'd developed an irrepressible desire to elicit laughter from those around him. Idiotic puns, acts of mimicry, and practical jokes came to him easily. Once he'd left the woods for Dwinaford, his good-natured play and pure, boisterous laugh had quickly endeared him to everyone about the city. Everyone with a functioning sense of humor, that is. But Thula was a tougher nut to crack than most. Even in her best moods, she was about as warm and approachable as a wet sock. When he first ventured a jibe about her eating habits, Careful with those pine nuts. Eat too many and you might get so thick that I'll be able to see you from the side. She cast such a menacing glower in his direction that he almost gave up on her altogether. But as anyone endowed with Glipnirni's curse must, he persevered. And to his surprise, he found that she wasn't quite so impervious to laughter as he had thought. One day, while Eglas was out in the woods, he found the skull of a great elk, complete with antlers. His mind began to turn. Thula had seemed to be more dour than usual of late. Perhaps it had something to do with the fact that everything seemed to be dripping about the eaves. Maybe there was some way he could cheer her up. Thula was in the hut, making an infusion of pine needles, juniper, and winter honey, when a knock came at the door. It was loud. Strong and slow. Eglas never knocked like that. Then she saw a great, horned shadow looming in the window. Leaping to her feet, Thula summoned the force of the winter wind in her lungs. With a word of power, she blasted open the door. She stood with one hand raised behind her, prepared to meet whatever monster had come to pay a visit. The air cracked and snapped at her fingertips, 
as she focused her dreadful energies to strike. But outside, she saw no dread Othan. Instead, a startled Eglos wobbled back and forth in the snow, his head stuck inside the great elk skull. It is I, said Eglos, in a deep and wavering voice. The ghost of one killed by long endurance of bad food. I hereby decree that we fry these bogans' noses I've found, maybe with a little sage and some butter. Then he spread his legs and let the ball-like brown mushrooms tumble one after the other from behind his back like turds. They plopped into the snow in a small pile. To his mind, this was impossibly humorous. Thula was not impressed. She flung her hand forward as if cracking a whip. A white-blue bolt leapt from her palm and struck the skull between the antlers. The bone burst instantly apart, leaving Eglos to stagger backwards and fall to his rump in the snow. I had no idea you were so sensitive about your cooking, he said, rubbing his forehead. At this... Thula let loose a gale of laughter. It was the first time he'd heard her laugh, and the effect was like a spell in and of itself. She seemed to become instantly younger. A smile appeared on her face as if taking it by surprise. It lent its grace and softness to her features, and he found himself marveling at her beauty. The greatest change was in her eyes. The flame of resentment, which had burned there since before Eglos's arrival, flickered and then went out altogether, like a candle thrust into a strong wind. "'What are you, some imp?' she laughed. "'You silly wild man. It'll be good to get rid of you, so I can be at peace again.' But she smiled while she spoke, and Eglos knew that she did not mean what she said. And the twinkle in her eye as she turned away was saying something else. Could it be? Without intending to, had he won a little piece of her heart for himself? Her heart? What if he had intended to win it? Could he admit it to himself? That night... He sat by the window and gazed long and hard at the wintry landscape rolling away beyond the hut. Freerla was out there. His Freerla, heavy laden with child, was down there, far from the peaks and narrow frozen passes. She was waiting for him. What had the Neithid Kalistra told Freerla on the day of his departure? If he remained by his wife's side during the pregnancy, the child would live a long and happy life. But if he went instead into the wilderness, had he doomed his own child to a life of misery? He turned from the window. Thula knelt by the hearth, tucking dry wood carefully into the flame. A soft smile played about the edges of her lips. He noticed it when she cast a fleeting glance at him. He noticed it when she looked away again, 
and the smile remained. Time went by. The dripping in the eaves turned into a dripping from the boughs of trees, and thence into a dripping and a trickling from the tops of boulders caught in the morning sun. This trickling turned to a burbling, and then to a rushing, and soon into an uninterrupted flow of sound from all over, as the white mountains sloughed off their winter coats and emerged, black, brown, gray, and green from beneath. Streams appeared everywhere. Drifts were punctured from beneath by forests of saplings and sprouts. Blue patches of sky appeared, tentatively at first, and then with greater confidence, thrusting themselves boldly through the layers of cloud. And as winter's shadow drew back from the mountains, Thula and Eglas grew closer and closer to one another. By this time, Eglas was well enough to go for long walks around the hut. Thula sometimes accompanied him. She showed Eglas things that Mulad had taught her in her youth. She took him to where the trout were so thick in the stream that it seemed to run with their flashing golden bodies, and to the grove in the wetwood where the drinking sequoias towered above the pools like giants, their roots plunged down into the depths. They rode among the enchanted arches in the same little canoes Thula and her father had once used. And Thula giggled with delight as she recalled the happy days of her childhood. Eglas told her long tales from his travels and from the world beyond the embrace of the peaks. They laughed freely and often. They stood closer and closer together. And the question of Eglas's punishment for slaying the Kundu was long forgotten. Though he was almost completely healed, Eglas still suffered from a lingering stiffness around his wounds. One morning, after seeing him wincing in pain, Thula announced that the time had come to cure it. She brought Eglas up a steep path, leading to a foreboding gray peak which stuck out like a stony horn from the back of a desolate fell. As they climbed higher up the path, he began to see steam pouring forth from the mountainside. The path terminated at the entrance to a cave. It was partly obscured by clouds of white mist, and Eglas hesitated, for he could not see what lay within. Thula turned and walked backwards into the curtain of mist, beckoning Eglas to follow with a teasing glance. He did, and found a whole series of inner chambers, filled with steaming baths. These were fed by hot springs. Each bath was a different temperature, from just above frozen to just short of scalding hot. Thula went away into the inner reaches of the cave and gave Eglas his privacy. Was it then by accident 
that when Eglas looked into the gloom, he caught a glimpse of her smooth, pale skin. Was it a mistake that she turned towards him, water dripping from her naked breasts, and rose from the pool just long enough to reveal the triangle of mysterious shadow that lay between her legs? And what was he to make of the hunger which rose in his own belly at the sight? The hunger which tormented him as he tried to sleep and set him groaning and tossing on the little cot back in the hut. Things seemed to happen very quickly then. Snow was still thick on the mountain crests, but the lower slopes were drawing up their white skirts at last. Fine, high-pitched cries drifted down on the wind. Fellini, the thin white birds that herald the changing of the seasons, were flying west. One morning, as they walked together in the dappled sunlight of the birch grove, their conversation was stiff and halting. The reason was no longer shyness, but the magnitude of their mutual attraction. Thula knew that Eglos already had a woman. Eglos had told her everything in plain words. And yet, the world that contained Oathguard and Freerla and all the rest seemed to be far, far away. Perhaps it was even a different world altogether. Perhaps a thing done in this world would not carry over to that other. In fact, thought Eglos, as they walked together in the melting snow, laughing at the antics of a pair of courting foxes, maybe he would never return. For her part, Thula was torn between her thawing hatred and her kindling desire. Although she had forgiven Eglos for trespassing upon her domain, and even for destroying her beloved Shivara, she still held a bitter grudge against those living below. Hearing that he was promised to Freerla, the daughter of her sworn enemy, had produced a fit of rage in her so intense that Eglas had been terrified to behold it. It had been days before she thawed enough to speak with him again. But when she did, something miraculous had happened. He had bid her tell him the story of her pain. And as she spoke, he had listened. He had done nothing to try and fix it. He had instead borne silent witness, as his father the Vilgard had taught him. To her amazement, the tale had poured out of her, and as it had, a great chunk of anguish within her had broken apart, like a glacier calving into pure, clean water and rushing away. Some bitterness for the lowlanders remained, of course. The ache infused in her heart by the injustice of her father's death would never truly heal. Yet as she walked alongside the tall, handsome hunter that morning, she thought seldom of the world beyond the hills. She was too busy trying not to stare at his broad shoulders, which swayed as he moved, or his fine, supple hips, 
or his strong jaw and flashing smile. What would it be like to have such a man? To do with him the things she had been taught by the Sunahulani all those years ago during her ascension to womanhood. And even if she couldn't have him in that way, wouldn't it be enough just to walk with him like this? down the hidden valleys and up along the sun-stroked ridges. Perhaps it was hopeful naivete that made her believe it might remain this way forever. All of a sudden, before she knew what she was doing, she stopped in the middle of the path. Let us go to the baths, she said. He turned to her. His bright green eyes fixed her in place. An unpredictable, electric energy seemed to grab her by the shoulders. She began to vibrate. She saw his nostrils flare slightly, and his breath began to come short. Yes, was all he said. They said nothing to one another as they climbed the path but each of them knew what was going to happen. Here, the old man paused. Yet my mind went on. Maybe it was the lateness of the hour. Maybe it was the wine and ketayurt. Maybe it was some spell born of all the lonesome nights I had endured since the loss of my wife or a part of my youth that had never died and never would. Whatever the case, I could not help but see the details unfold before me. It was as if I were there. No, it was more than even that. It was as if I were both of them at once. I watched as she stripped her clothes off, revealing herself to him through a sheer curtain of steam. I watched his aching sex rise before her. They slid into the hot waters on either side of a pool, and I looked on through the window of my mind as they washed their trembling bodies. Then I saw him draw her near, and watched as their dripping mouths met at last. I felt the heat and softness of their lips, I knew the delirious joy each felt at tasting the other's mouth. Like starving travelers, finally given the food of their greatest desire, they devoured one another. She felt his hardness against her thigh and took it in her hand. He gasped, and for a moment she thought she had hurt him. But no, he breathed into her ear. She had not. It was that he had almost lost himself. And when he slid his fingers between her thighs and a quivering jolt of pleasure shot through her body, she gasped also. In my mind's eye I watched with blushing fascination as she took him eagerly in her mouth. Just as he was on the verge of breaking for a second time, He thrust her away. Lifting her from the water, he sat her upon the edge of the pool and in turn gorged himself on the taste of her sex. 
At last, panting, pawing, heaving with desire, they found their way together, and she took him deep inside. Haini gave herself to the lovers. Up and up and up they rose, as if climbing the ladder of their pleasure into the very heavens, until at last they were entirely overcome. Great, blinding thunderbolts of ecstasy shattered their bodies and minds into utter oblivion, and they spun together, merged into a single being, at once annihilated and made anew, flawlessly reincarnated and lost forever in the vast, pure, eternal emptiness of bliss. The next nine months passed in a blur. They were happy times, full of laughter, song, and warmth. Thula and Eglos's lovemaking had shaken something loose in the heavens. The hut, which had for so long been a scene of the utmost deprivation, became a home again. Spring delivered them colorful meadows in which to walk. It gave them tansy, nitifos, and sweet woodruff to strew upon the floor. It cleared the skies, so that at night they could lie together and gaze in wonder at the slow, dazzling procession of stars. It brought animals streaming into the valley, so that the woods were full of birdsong and teeming with game. Summer came with its delicious long days and bright, moonlit nights. It was a time of naked swims in mountain lakes and of lazy afternoons spent soaking in the wash of golden sunshine. It was a time of plenty. They hunted fat brown ptarmigans among the blooming willows. They plucked gooseberries, hazelnuts, and fiddleheads. They ate shimmering rainbow trout from the streams. Thula grew heavy with child. They smiled all the time. But as the first orange blush of autumn came over the woodlands, the enchantment began to come to an end. The first sign that anything was amiss was Thula's magic. It had weakened dramatically with the coming of spring. She could no longer summon her wintry servants, nor call the forces of wind and snow to aid her in her daily chores. Yet while her connection to the song had ebbed, neither Egloss nor Thula worried about it in the slightest. They were much too happy. But as the air started to harden, Eglos noticed something troubling. Thula seemed to have entirely lost her ability to withstand the cold. Even the slightest chill was enough to set her shivering. 
When they went outside to sit and bask in the morning light, she bundled herself up until she looked like a fat mother hen. Yet still her skin prickled. Still she tried to draw her clothes tighter about herself. Still her lips lost their color. Eglos told himself that she was just sensitive while carrying the baby, and that everything would be all right. Thula knew better, for she and she alone recalled the sacrifices she had made when courting the cold all those months ago. In exchange for the power to secure her revenge, she'd sworn to live without comfort, pleasure, or the joys of human companionship. She'd promised loyalty, and in exchange, her icy lover had hardened her into an instrument of vengeance. It had turned her into a whore and placed the fate of Evenhold in the palm of her hand. She had used her overwhelming strength to punish it. But now... Thula sighed heavily and shrugged the furs close about her shoulders. Eglos knelt by the hearth. He was splitting pieces of larch with his knife and feeding them into the fire. His face, half turned to her, was cast in a flickering orange glow. He was smiling slightly, thinking about something she could not guess at and singing quietly under his breath. Sensing her gaze, he glanced back. The depth of love in his eyes broke her heart, and she had to do everything she could to hide the tears which tickled her nose and threatened to undo her. He smiled a heavy-lidded smile and turned away. It would not last. None of it would last. She had betrayed the cold. Now it had come to claim its due. How could she have been so foolish? There was so much out there still to see. There was so much love, only just discovered, that promised to unlock whole regions of her once closed heart. And if what Eglos told her about the other men and women who inhabited the world was true and she had been wrong about them. She had been so wrong. Why was life so sad? Why did one discover the truth only too late for it to matter? Thula shook her head and wept silently while her man tended the fire. She had become wise before her time. As the babe came to term in Thula's belly, Winter returned to the land. The leaves fell. The Thelini reappeared in the sky. They looked like faint white lines, waving high, high above among the feathery clouds. They were going east. Eglos did everything he could to prepare their home. He made sure that the fire stayed hot, that the chinks in the walls were patched, and that the wood was collected and split. He stalked the larder. 
He made sacrifices to the gods and said the correct prayers to protect the little hut against the worst designs of wind and snow. Though he had but a vague grasp of the song, he tried some of the spells she taught him. The days began to gallop past them. By the time the first frost appeared on the meadow, Thula could no longer help with any of the work. She was too pregnant and too cold. She remained outside, cuddled in a nest of blankets. Egloss did his best to keep her comfortable. When she lost her appetite, he went to great pains to seek out her favorite spices in the dwindling patches of green on the slopes, and spent hours cooking his best huntsman's recipes. He tried to disguise his dismay at how little she ate. When he caught her staring out the window, lost in thought, he broke her reveries with humor. But as the skin on Thula's belly tightened, they spoke honestly about what must soon happen. Neither of them knew much. They were both scared. Egloss went down from the mountains in search of help, but when he reached Noost, he found it an empty place, aching with silence and shadow. Worse still, the dead had not slept easily there. Egloss fled, pursued by sorrow wraiths. Only the ancient wards placed on the valley by the dwarves saved him. Back in the hut, Thula and Egloss clung to one another and cried like helpless children. There was nothing they could do. The last week they spent together was quiet, tender, and mercilessly sad. It was gone in the blink of an eye. The night the baby came was the worst of Egloss's life. It was a bloody, painful affair. Thula's screams as the child arrived would haunt Egloss for the rest of his life. She lived long enough to give the baby his name, Aaron, after the warm winds of summer. Then she died and left the world to its misery and its joy. Egloss knew what he must do. He wrapped the newborn in all the warm things he could find. Around its tiny neck, he placed the charm of Cirn, which Thula had worn her entire life. Gathering up what few supplies he could carry, Egloss kissed Thula's cold cheek goodbye, tied the child securely to his back, and went out into the snow. We will not speak of his journey down from the mountains, nor will we linger upon the adventures and difficulties he had in reaching the snowy plateau or in crossing it to the Sunat Howden. Of this last, sorry chapter of our tale, let us say but little. When at last Egloss collapsed, half dead upon the emerald steps of Braesteel in Oathgard, it was Hafnir who came rushing to greet him. Freyrla was not present. 
The birth of her son, Corin, had already cost her everything. She had descended into that state of open-eyed sleep in which she remains to this day. For welcome, Aglas could only look to Hafnir. Yet when, with frost-bitten fingers, he thrust the babe towards its grandfather, the Thane of Evenhold staggered back in horror. What have I done? breathed Hafnir. For he had seen the charm of Cirn, which hung about the infant's neck. He had seen it and recognized it as his own, which all those years ago he had placed around the neck of his own daughter, before sending her from his home to die in the frozen wastes. What have I done? he said again. And for the rest of his life, he would say nothing else. When at last the old master stopped speaking, the fire had again burned low in the hearth. This time, however, its warmth remained in patches of glowing coals. Outside, the raging winds had gone still. We rose creakily from the chairs, stretching and squinting and shaking our legs. A fine winter tale for a fine winter night, said Minka, and he clapped the old man gently on the back, like he used to do with our father. And well told. Now I think we ought to go to bed. The master nodded slowly. We're off to the Todgers tomorrow, you know, said Eula to me, yawning and lifting the cat carefully from her lap. You're welcome to come along if you like. He's been asking about you. The old Todger himself, eh? said I. Glad to know he's still around. Has he forgotten about the apples yet? Minka had gone to the back to put away the nails and hammer. I heard him laugh. Mentions it every time we see him, came his voice. You'll stay here, won't you, uncle? said Eula, laying her hand fondly on the old master's shoulder. Of course you will. I'll bring the blankets and pillow and we'll make you a proper nest. The old master only nodded and squeezed Eula's hand. Lovely story, said Barbo, who had not yet risen. He looked very drowsy, and I guessed that he too would spend the night. Lovely, real clapper. When everyone had gone to bed, I went outside. The snow was still falling, but only just... It lay thick and white and quiet all around, like a spell cast over the sleeping city. But the wind was gone, as if it had been nothing more than a dream. Everything had gone very still. The moons had finally risen. The mother peeked over the ramparts of the valley to the west, the maiden, pink and proud, hung like a glowing marble over her shoulder. 
the snow bear gleamed bright, and just behind it, like a vague reflection, I noticed a constellation I had never seen before. Its stars seemed to outline a patch of shadow in the heavens, as if to separate it from the background. I looked at it for a long time, and saw only the cloudy shapes of the god's mist passing through it, glimmering faintly against the pale light of dawn. Stuna was standing with the other horses, half asleep. He dropped his nosebag again. Oh well. As I knocked the snow off his back, he turned his muzzle to me and sneezed. As he settled back in and closed his eyes, I sighed. I hadn't realized how uncomfortable it had made me to leave him out on such a night. It was a relief to see him snoozing away again. It was just as I was turning back to the door that I recalled what I had seen earlier in the evening. I went out into the road. The shadow, which in the moonless dark had seemed some sort of... well, I don't know what turned out to be nothing but a stone hitching post after all. Its top was carved to resemble a laughing, elfish figure. It wore a hat of snow. I chuckled to myself and turned to go back inside. But when I opened the door, I froze. For what was that sound behind me? A soft crunch like the footstep of someone trying not to be heard. I spun round. I felt an inexplicable sense of alarm, or fear, even panic. But in the soft light of the witch-pine cob, which bled out through the open doorway, I saw nothing. This has been The Boy with the White Hair, written and performed by me, Nick Thurston. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for following us along in this uh, long and winding and uh, hopefully not too tedious tale. Um, And uh, I hope you enjoyed it. If you liked what you listened to or you have thoughts or comments or reflections, Uh, please reach out to me and let me know. Uh, This is absolutely a labor of love for me, and any and all of your support means the world to me as I go about exploring this great world of Aya and bringing you the stories of what I find there. So if you like what I'm doing, let me know and tell a friend.